There was a 2014 WOMAD event with Polly Higgins, Tim Flannery and Peter Garrett about this time last year, relatively on this question. And Polly Higgins is the ecocide advocate some of you might know of. It actually started in quite a surprising way, I, well, a way I didn't expect, and I want to put this to the panel. It segues nicely from what Michael was talking about. So Tim Flannery said that the law is good for specific things, but for the broader complex situations of today, the first thing he'd do if in government would be to ask, how can we increase our empathy? And he went on to talk about developing mor our moral philosophy, if you will, suggesting that the law would follow based on what we come to believe is right. I wonder what you might make of that. I'd just like to say that I don't love my neighbour. He plays Roy Orbison very loudly in Yeroa. That's the first thing I'd like to say, Michael. <laughs> but I think that's a really fascinating place to start this because we can't actually know what laws we need until we have the conversation that tells us what laws are going to be good for delivering what it is we want. And my experience about that isn't environmental. It's to do with the Koori Courts, where people sat down and said, we need an Aboriginal justice agreement. We need to talk about it. We need to have a conversation in places like this about what that will look like. And then we need to work out the tasks for people. We need to know whether the people want to do those tasks, whether they think that this is a viable route to take, where we think that route is going to take us, how we think we're going to unpack it along the way, and who's going to be with us on the journey. And that's all about having the conversations. And as a lawyer, we stand in court and we talk about the law and we articulate cases and we represent people and things and objects and cases that are civil and criminal. But at the end of the day, we don't actually think about why those laws are or what they are there to achieve. And that conversation is profound, it's important, but it's not a conversation that only lawyers should have or parliamentarians should have. It's a conversation we should have. Another important question that uh, I, I was just reflecting upon while you were asking is, what is the law? We assume that we know what we're talking about when we, we, we say in the word, the law. But by no means, that term is universal. There's a wealth of legal theory, actually, on, on contradictory legal theory on what the law is. Irene Watson says that for her people in the Adelaide Plains, the law is in the ground. The law is not a thing that we construct and possess. The law is already there. And so there's one version of what the law is that certainly responds to this sort of very neutral, impersonal, um, sterile thing that we are shackled by. But maybe the law for other people has completely different meanings. The law is our nature. It's not just nature, to uh, paraphrase what Michael was saying. For example, there are two legal statements, one from Awahi and one from the Lakota people of the US. And in Awahi, the sense of identity, of legal identity, is expressed by this term by saying, ie ava'i'i, I am Awahi. I have the legal identity of this place. I eat of this place and I am eaten of this place at the end. For the Lakota people, everything begins any kind of uh, prayer, oration, or political statement begins with uh, two words, metakaya oyasin. Everything is my relation, all my relation. And it's a statement that acknowledges that we do not live as neutral arbiter of reality. We live as interconnected family members with reality itself. So 
the, the calling someone brother and sister or something or some animal or a tree a brother or a sister, it's not just a metaphor. It has normative and legal meanings. So I think it's important also to, to remember that what the law is, is a question. It's not a statement. Thanks, Alex. That, that reminds me, where you started there with the idea of the, the law is in the ground, reminds me of the musician Philip Glass's comment when he was asked about where he gets his ideas from, and he said, well, they're not mine. It's like an underground aquifer, and I just, if I sit long enough, I'll pick it up and be able to communicate it. Perhaps a related question, but please take it up, anyone, wherever you like. How do we cultivate that in where it isn't, I guess? Very tricky question. Certainly before you can have laws, good environmental laws, you really need society to support the intent of those laws. It, it, it doesn't work if, you, if the law is well ahead of society. You know, you can't... It's, it's very difficult to have a law and then try and drag society along behind it. Generally, you either don't get the law in the first place or it, it just mm -hmm. fails and never gets properly implemented, which is, for example, with the Flora and Fauna Guarantee Act. You need to work on that um, community support and community vision and, and you know, empathy and that, that love of nature and the recognition of that first. It's very important. How you go about that is obviously much more difficult. <laughs> I mean, it's something that, for example, the, the Places You Love Alliance is trying to do at the moment. It's very, it's very difficult to get people engaged in a legal conversation. It's, you know, the law is pretty boring for most people. Uh, even though, you know, environmental law is very important and it, and it provides a lot of protection for us, we don't necessarily recognise that. So the Places You Love Alliance is really trying to help people connect, you know, thinking about the place you love and realising that environmental law is one of the things that helps protect that place. And so we need to defend environmental laws. Um, but not, not talking about the laws, but, you know, connecting people back to the place that they love or the places that they particularly love and think about um, what would happen if, if those laws weren't there. So, yeah, talking about the law itself is probably not a good starting point. Hmm. <laughs> Connecting people back to nature, but the nature that they love, the, the, the places in Australia and around the world that they really love is, is, you know, the really important starting point. You can do that in really prosaic ways too, I think, and when you're talking about um, farming and rivers and cattle on rivers, it seems to me from the work that we've done all over Victoria, or I did when I was the commissioner, that you make it possible for people, you make the possibilities possible, and sometimes that's about incentives, sometimes it's about something really prosaic, like simply saying, you will be funded to do this and you will be our partner in doing it. And sometimes, it always surprised me, but sometimes it's the government that's extending the, um, the olive branch in relation to that and saying, be our partner in what we want to do. But before that happens, it's always about people having a sense of their place in the world. And I think that's what I got from what you were saying, Michael. Where our place is in the world is the important part to start from. Yes, that's the mystery bit, I think. I, I think that gets too mysterious, so everybody can easily turn back to academic or legal or political statements, as they must, which are of great value, but this other area is very perplexing. It seems also crucial, but is how do we... How, what is the language for talking about this sentiment, this affection... Uh, I find very baffling. I think it's my life's work is trying to understand what are we made of and why do we do what we do? It's just a philosopher's question, I guess. 
but it just starts in childhood when you see a poor, humans behaving appallingly and your innocence is offended and you are depressed by what you see. And so it continues, when you, particularly in this area we're talking about, in this assault and the sort of indifference and savagery towards, uh, towards nature, which is really the epitome of all that is beautiful. And I don't mean that in a sentimental way. I mean in its, in its fierce beauty and, you know, I love a sunburned mm. country, a land, yeah. etc. Um, her beauty and her terror, etc. Mm. When one can really hold it like that, I think, how do you get to that? How do you get that? And to, that people would prefer to wear a woolen jumper than a nylon jumper, you know, it's sort of questions like that. Eat natural food and, and not do it because it's kind of proper in some way, but because it's delicious and it's, you know, be beauty is also this quality, which is seen as some luxury, some glamorous thing, but beauty mm -hmm. as the raw beauty, which I think is crucial to our spirit, not the proclaimed glamour, but just beauty as truth and the way nature is and the way it is, is coordinates and mm -hmm. is interwoven and perfect. I mean, I, I woke up in the Strathbogie Ranges this morning, where I went to bed the night before, thank goodness, but, um, <laughs> but uh, I was up at five, and as I often am, and I was out there on the veranda, and the birds, they start. And there's this little bird, and then that bird, and then those parrots and sudden and then your mind and your all your hearing or what's left of my hearing went out out and it's it just builds up and it's sub, it's complex and it's subtle and it's uh, far and it's near and it's layered and you think this is genius you know it's the astonishing genius of nature and then it becomes very moving and profound and and you say well I do hope that the young students of musical composition are out in the dawn hearing what I'm hearing. So, and thus it has always been. Nature has been this fantastic source of truth, which drags us back to, to the great beauty that is of consequence. Not the Hollywood beauty, but this eternal thing. That's what and, the uh, does to you, Michael. Sorry? <laughs> it does. Well, it does. Yes, it's very corrupting to live in the bush. <laughs> can I, can I, can, There's could, a thought. Could I make a comment in relation yep. to that? I mean, the Strathbogies okay. is, is an extraordinary, magical, unique place, and we're doing our best to probably ruin it from many perspectives. But I just want to say something about the city. And I'm mindful that many of you live here in the city and many of you are probably part of all sorts of efforts that are being made by city administrations. And there's some great work happening. I lived for a little while when I was the commissioner over in West Melbourne and I used to walk into work past those great Melaleucas there in Adelie Street or whatever, whatever street it was. And you'd walk through and there'd be the, um, the parrots there in West Melbourne, just up from what Aboriginal people would have known as the swamp, which we filled up with what was uh, the remnant of Batman Hill when we moved that. It's all so interconnected. But the city administrations are doing some stuff, Michael, and it's not the Strathbogies. It never probably will be or is able to be again. 
But I was really taken by what was happening with the urban forest strategy and the fact that people were really committed to that. And when the east-west link didn't go through, I know that certain people in the city of Melbourne were absolutely delighted because there's remnant bush out there in Royal Park. And they were very deeply distressed by what was going to happen to it. So I do want to say that I think that the city has enormous potential and it depends on how we think about a city and how we think about ourselves in it. And one of the great examples of that was in Korea, in Seoul. They have re-enlivened the river in that city. And it was a drain, it was a swamp, it was like our Merry Creek, a concrete drain. And they've re-enlivened that drain and it's now a river. And you can walk along that river and you can sit on the rocks next to that river and you can watch the birds come back to that river and they've done biodiversity studies of that river and they know that there are fish back in it and frogs back in it and insects skating along the surface. And you can see those ripples as you walk along that river there in Seoul. And you would have seen a drain full of old car bodies and whatever else had you looked some 10 years ago. So I think there are enormous possibilities, even for the city, and I think there's some great people doing some really terrific work in the city, and I, I wouldn't want, I, I personally wouldn't want to overlook that, even though I come from the Strathbogies. If I can actually pick up on something that Michael was saying before, how disheartening it is to see somebody sadistically maiming a tree. But I don't think it's sadism. Because if we are nature, and I agree with you that we are nature, it's not sadism, it's masochism. Masochism, we're doing it to ourselves. And yes. there's, if you can read a passage actually of mathematical... But the fantasy is that they are doing it of to course. the tree, aren't they? That's a fantasy. Of but course, it's, yes. so, it's the equivalent of sociopathy. Yes. It's extreme sociopathy taken to, to dominate that which cannot mm. hit back. And in fact, actually, to mirror what you were saying, uh, mathematical cosmologist Brian Swim beautifully wrote that every place we went, we became that place. That is the brilliant power provided by symbolic consciousness. With the cultural inventions, humans could adapt to new environments much more quickly than would be the case if they had to rely solely upon genetic changes. That's why the humans who decided to follow the reindeer rapidly became reindeer people. They walked the same pathways as the reindeer. They ate the same, some of the same foods. At night, in their feasts and their dancing, they celebrated the thrill of being the reindeer people. Other humans aligned themselves with the whales and became the whale people. Some identified with the birds and began wearing feathers and greeting each other at dawn with song. The early humans did not just journey through Earth's worlds. The spirits of each world captivated their imaginations as they revisioned their lives in terms of that place. And so to answer that question of how do we start is, well, do we know what moon phase is tonight? Do we know why the birds sing at a particular time? And do we know why the kookaburra come at sunset? And what, what are they singing for? What, what are they saying? Which trees are important? Which individual trees are important in that particular region? I think the wealth and the richness of observation is the starting point, by just looking around and, and enjoying and the pleasure of just observing. It's the simplicity of looking. Often we think that the, the, the solution has to be some archaic, difficult, uh, holy grail that is yet to be discovered, and we, we'd like to cast ourselves in the, uh, in the role of Prometheus, bringing the, the fire to the others, but maybe it's just the simplicity of looking around and absorbing everything that we, we see. Thank you.
That was Professor Kate Orty, Dr. Alessandro Palazzon, Nicola Rivers, and Michael Lunig. For more on some of the initiatives mentioned here and a vital call to action for us Aussies ahead of the federal government's current bill shortly to reach the Senate, see the links in our program details. You can also hear the rest of this conversation, including some quality audience Q&A, in an extra to this episode. In other related news, some of you might have caught the brilliant ABC documentary series Australian Story last week. But if you didn't, you'll see a link in the show notes to that too. It featured regenerative farming pioneer and best-selling author Charles Massey, along with Diane Dee and Haggerty from episode 68 on this podcast, and a little of yours truly. The Regeneration is an independent production made ad-free and freely available for listening and re-syndication thanks to our generous supporters and partners. If you too value what you hear, please consider joining them by visiting the website via the show notes, regeneration.com. Thanks for your support, and thanks also for sharing, rating and reviewing the podcast. I recently contacted the wonderful Australian musician and composer Ray Howe to ask if she'd be up for featuring one of her extraordinary pieces in the podcast. She couldn't have been more generous in response. The music you're hearing is Far Away Castle by Ray Howe and Sunray. My name's Anthony James. The month of September saw another new high for players of this podcast, so once again, thanks so very much for listening. <laughs>